Um, well, if you have a Bible, turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30. Uh, as far as chapters in the Bible go, this one's got it all. It has got tragedy, it's got irony, it's got suspense, it's got characters that are shocking, characters that you feel for, characters that you just want to wrangle their necks. It is a profound and deep chapter of the Bible, yet it is eminently real and practical. And there is this wonderful theme woven throughout the entire chapter that really binds all these diverse elements together. Uh, this is not bad for David's final chapter in the book of 1 Samuel. He realized this is it for David. There were moments in our study where it was a little sketchy. We weren't quite sure how David would turn out. Of course, if you know the biblical narrative, you know it turns out well. But there were moments as we studied his life, we, it could have gone one way or the other. And David's life turns out, the ends the way it ought to. But this chapter does not start in a way that we would expect. This chapter starts a little like how our lives can sometimes be. An emotional roller coaster, tennis match, seesaw, up and down, back and forth, twists and turns. If you weren't here last week, we left David and his men on a big high. God had miraculously done something that where there was no way, God had provided a way for them. Chapter 30, however, as it opens up, could not be more of a stark contrast if you tried. After reading the very first three verses of our chapter, you might be tempted to ask, if God brings His salvation in 10,000 different ways, which has been the theme that we've seen in the end of 1 Samuel, then how do you make sense of chapter 30? I mean, what's the point of being delivered from having to fight your brothers in battle only to come home to see your sons and daughters taken off in a raid while you were gone? Can you imagine, and hopefully you do take advantage of reading the chapter ahead, um, and so you, you've read chapter 30, and hopefully you've seen the um, amazing stark contrast between how we ended last week and how this chapter begins. You couldn't have any more of an emotional whiplash than these two chapters. You can imagine these men coming home just on this high of how God had delivered them, encouraged to tell stories to their wives, tell their kids how God had miraculously intervened. They no longer had to fight their own people, and they're free, only to come home and see over the hillside smoke and rubble as your entire city has been razed to the ground and not a single soul around. Life may not be so extreme, but it is like that, isn't it? That there can be these highs, and immediately right after that, some lows mixed in with other highs, and, and we kind of get left in, a, in a emotionally uncertain of what to feel next. You might have had that experience. Hey, congratulations, you're having a baby. Unfortunately, your baby could have Down syndrome or Edwards syndrome. Congratulations, you just graduated college, but the economy's tanked, and McDonald's is not even hiring right now, you know? Hey, we got rid of Al-Qaeda, now we have ISIS. Hey, it's an election year, but look at the candidates. I mean, back and forth, back and forth. Life's ironies are never ending. I think that poet from the 90s said it best, Alanis Morissette, when she said, an old man turned 98, he won the lottery and died the next day. It's the black fly in your Chardonnay. It's a death row pardon two minutes too late. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? If you know the song, you're probably singing it in your head. It's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just didn't take. Who would have thought it figures? Isn't it ironic? 
Now, as we leave David in the book of 1 Samuel, we see him in the midst of profound tragedy and yet significant victory. And in between these two, as if to say this is how he deals with it, is this one phrase that is the key to the chapter and probably key to David's entire life. It's the verse, it's verse 6, we'll read it in a little bit, where it says, and David strengthened himself in his God. So this morning, we want to ask two questions of chapter 30, and, that is the, and there are these. How do we strengthen ourselves in God? And how does that shape our response to life's highs and lows? Those are the two questions we want chapter 30 to answer for us. How do we strengthen ourselves in God? And how does that shape our responses to life's highs and lows? So let's jump into the chapter. What I'm going to read is the majority of the chapter. I won't read every single verse, but enough where you get the sense of the flow. 1 Samuel chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. Just a quick comment on that. That might seem merciful that they didn't kill any of the captives, but the reality is it would be a life worse, a fate worse than death as they would be sold off in the slave market and eke out an existence as a slave, never seeing their family and friends again. So that isn't the mercy of the Malachites, it is just their way to make profit off of these captives. Verse 3, and when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Verse 6, and David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because of all the people that were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Verse 7, and David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? The Lord answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. Skip down to verse 17. And when David had caught up to the Amalekites, he struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except for 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Finally, verse 26 Then when David had returned with his men and they came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoils to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Okay, that's enough to get a sense of what's going on in this chapter. And we'd be hard-pressed to think of a more tragic situation than what David and his men are facing here as chapter 30 opens up. 
In verses 3 through 6, you have what I call the unhappy trinity of life in a fallen world. Real significant tragedy followed by deep sorrow, followed by deep bitterness and anger. In a fallen world, unfortunately, these three will follow us around. We know enough about tragedy, sorrow that leads to anger, but this is something that's very significant. When you work with people who are experiencing tragedy and they're experiencing sorrow, it's not too far you have to look before anger shows itself. And that's something that we need to think about as you, if you are dealing with tragedy or sorrow or if you are working and ministering to somebody who's going through a sorrow, that they may allow their sorrow to morph into anger towards you as we see that it happened towards David. But the important phrase that I want us to focus in on isn't necessarily the tragedy and the sorrow and the anger. Unfortunately, we're all very versed in those things. The thing that we need to learn from God's Word is, how did David turn this around? Can you imagine feeling the ire and wrath of 600 men who have lost their wives, daughters, and sons, and all that they had, all focus their anger upon you? How did David endure? How did he turn it around? Well, we saw it right there in verse 6. The passage says, He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So the real question we have is, what does that look like and how do we do it too? What did that look like for David and how do we do it? So that's what we're going to look at first. How do we strengthen ourselves in God? Before we jump into how we actually do it, I think it's important to spend a couple of moments to talk about what that doesn't look like in our world today so that we clearly understand what it is. So, how do we strengthen ourselves in God? Or let's talk a little bit about what does it mean not to? What does that not look like? Does that make sense? The first thing is, strengthening ourselves in God is not some kind of evangelical or religious quick fix. It's not recognizing in life that the pressure's on, and so there I'm going to turn to religion or turn to Jesus, and He's going to help me out in that moment. He's not a genie in a bottle. We all know that. We don't just turn to Jesus when the pressure's on. He's not a a personal pain reliever to help us get over the aches and pains of our lives. That's not how relationship with God works. Uh, I was talking to my kids that it's in in a metaphor they could understand. I was like, Jesus is more like broccoli than he is a can of Red Bull, right? Uh, Yeah, Red Bull, you might feel your energy ebbing and you can drink a can of that and you might feel ready to go. But it's not the kind of deep, nutritional, abiding strength that you're going to get as if you eat broccoli regularly. Now, the problem with broccoli is it's not as glamorous, it's not as trendy, it's not as sexy to eat broccoli. But if you eat broccoli, that pulls into your life, brings into your life the kind of strength you need when the hard times come. Secondly, strengthening yourself in God is not merely venting as if it was some kind of cathartic release of emotion without discernment or care. The other day, my family and I were driving in our minivan, and we were listening to um, one of the Christian music stations. And I really enjoy listening to the songs they play. The problem I have sometimes is when they start talking between the songs and saying things that are completely not biblical. For example, and it was well intended, but they were picking up on the trend in our culture today about authenticity. Have you ever heard that buzzword? So we want to be real and we want to be authentic with God. And what this person meant by that was, man, when you're angry, when life has let you down, it's okay to be angry with God. You can be angry at Him. He knows He can take it. And I was sitting there going, 
No, no, that's not the point. It's not the point of whether or not God can take it. His self-esteem is not so little and fragile that he'll be offended if his creation gets mad at him. You're missing the point. Where do we ever see in Scripture that you should be, oh, it's okay to be mad with God, that that's the definition about being real? Right? The only person that we actually see that happening with in the book of Job. And if anyone had reason to be really mad at God, we say it would be him. But even Job himself, after his wife and his friends tell him, curse God and die, he kind of loses it and gets upset with God for a couple of chapters. God says, can I speak to you for a moment on that? And God in his lovingness reveals to Job his almighty sovereignty for about two chapters and Job finally comes out saying, whoops, you're right. I am in no place to be angry with you. Now, now think about this. Anger assigns blame. Blame assumes guilt. Guilt is a verdict of wrongdoing. You follow that? Anger assigns blame. Blame assumes guilt. Guilt is a verdict of wrongdoing. God does no wrong, so bears no guilt, is therefore blameless, and thus can never be the object of our anger, let alone anyone else's anger. Does that make sense? Furthermore, how odd to believe that the very one that you should be seeking comfort and care from, that you ultimately believe is responsible for your sorrow and tragedy. From a therapeutic perspective, that doesn't work. So authentically being mad at God may sound like a good idea on the front end, but it actually undercuts the very thing, the very relationship you need. Now, now here's why I think our culture uh, thinks that's the way to go in being authentic as opposed to really dealing with what's really going on. When we are angry... And keep in mind, anger is a God-given emotion to us, right? Not saying anger is wrong. Anger is an emotion that God gives to us for good. When we get angry, the impulse, it is supposed to move us to take action against injustices in the world, right? So when you get angry, the adrenaline goes up, your pupils dilate, your attention focuses, you get strong and ready for action. That's a good thing. But what happens is when we turn that to the wrong object, that's when it becomes sinful. But the reason this is easy is anger keeps us strong, keeps us on the offensive, keeps us on the attack, and actually keeps us in control. Even though we might be losing control when we lash out at times, the emotion of anger keeps us in the driver's seat of what's going on. In that sense, it's a very easy emotion to, to process. When, when you're hurt, Anger is an easy emotion to justify. When we've been wronged, anger is easy to understand, right? However, here's what we miss in this whole talk about being angry and it's okay to be angry at God. Here's what we miss. The underlying motivation of most of our anger is that we hurt, is that we are hurt. Anger is easy to go with because it keeps us in control. When you are hurt, that is hard. And I mean that on a number of levels, not just the experience of being hurt, but processing hurt is a hard emotion to process. Think about it. When we're hurt, when we're having to deal with our hurt, we're actually saying and being honest that I feel vulnerable, that I, I feel alone, I feel somehow abandoned or betrayed or orphaned almost in this given situation. We're facing our own frailty and the fragility of our lives. Instead of telling God how angry you are at Him, 
How about having the conversation and telling him how hurt you are and how alone you feel and how scared it is? See, having that conversation is much more fruitful than telling him you're mad at him, isn't it? But it's a lot harder of a conversation to have because we have to admit our vulnerability and the sense that we are afraid. Now, just to illustrate this, if you've ever seen kind of young kids, 8 through 10, where there, there's a lot, not a lot of the, the emotional filters that we have so often, when young girls get mad at each other or hurt each other's feelings, they cry and they say, you hurt my feelings. When young boys do that, what do they do? They say, you jerk. You're seeing the very dynamic I'm speaking of playing itself out. Young boys don't say, or neither do us men. You know that comment you said, that... that that hurt, man. Can we talk about that? It doesn't happen. We just get mad because hurt and anger are on the same spectrum of emotions, but they're not the same. And so as we deal with them, we have to understand the distinctions. So telling God that you hurt, that's the conversation that brings you closer to Him. That's the one that we need to have. So summing up, Jesus is not a spiritual pick-me-up. Jesus is not a, 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 a kind of emotional complaint department where we list our grievances, those two actually destroy relationship, they, or they're manipulative at best. God wants relationship, not manipulation. And so we want to be clear on what it means to strengthen ourselves in part by knowing what it doesn't look like. And it doesn't look like manipulating God by being angry or, or just dumping stuff on Him, right? So what does it look like? What does strengthening ourselves in God actually look like? I think we see it in our passage here. First of all, it's this. It's personal. Notice in our passage, David strengthened himself, right in the text, in the Lord his God. You see, to, God, to David, God was not a formality. God was not a deity at a distance. David recognized that God had an opinion and perspective on everything, of the, everything that mattered in the world, and he could relate with him. They could have a personal relationship with him. This is where our strengthening actually begins. You and God on a very personal, relational level one being to another being, communicating. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I can imagine that probably by now your mind is scrambling around in your head hearing that. It should be. It sh I mean, Christians say a lot of crazy and bizarre things, but that one I just said should take the cake in your mind. A Christian is someone who first and foremost believes that God is a personal being and one who can be known and related to personally. If you can get on board with that claim, there's nothing we can say more crazy than that. That we actually believe that Almighty Sovereign Creator of everything is a personality, a being that wants relationship. That's the most astounding claim Christianity has ever made. And, and, and if you think, well, that doesn't sound astounding, I believe that too. That just goes to show how influenced you are by a Judeo-Christian worldview and don't even know it. Look globally on all the regions of the world that Christianity has not exerted a significant influence. And what you're, you're not going to see belief in personal deity. 
If you've been with our church for several weeks, you've seen our friends from India, our friends from Laos. They are believing in a pantheon of millions of gods of which you do not matter at all or animism. But every region of the world where the gospel has significant influence, so we're talking about the Middle East sections, Western Europe, most of Eastern Europe, certain major parts of Africa and the Americas, it's just an assumed reality that God is a personal being. That goes to show how radically Christianity has changed the view of the world. Where we don't see that is in areas of Southeast Asia, Asia, and the Far East, where Christianity has not had a historic foothold. My point simply being, that's the most radical claim we have, that God Himself wants to actually know you. Now, that's the foundation, okay? That, that's not even actually one of the steps here. That's primary foundation, because from there you take the step into what David does next in our passage. The way David strengthens himself in his God, I really think, if you're a note taker, write down 1 Samuel 23, 16 and 17. The reason that's important is, if you recall, Jonathan finds David while he's on the run, meets up with David behind Saul's back, and the same grammatical construction is used by the author that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in his God. And then it was followed up by Jonathan reminding David of the promises of God to him. It's the same grammatical construction used there as it is in our chapter. So what I'm saying is that 1 Samuel 23, 16, and 17 is the key to interpret 1 Samuel 36 and how David strengthens himself in God. It's safe to assume then based on that, that when it says he strengthened himself in his God, he was repeating to himself the promises of God that he had made to him in his life. Does that make sense? So David was reminding himself, these are the promises of God. This is how my good friend Jonathan reminded me to be strong in the Lord. It was the promises of God to me. The Psalms also are, provide us another clue. A lot of times if you read the Psalms, uh, especially the, I think in the 40s to the 70s, they open up with a lot of darkness, a lot of despair, and the psalmist then begins to, in a sense, preach a, a sermon to himself, and then you see it change dramatically. I think Psalm 42, it's on the screen behind me, is a great example of that. So, the, and folks, we are so familiar with reading the Bible that things like we're going to read right now just wash over us and we don't think about it. Look at the first lines. My tears have been my food day and night. If you've ever been at a low point and in despair, that ought to just leap off the screen and say, you get me. You get me. I know what that's like. While they all say to me all day long, where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So what he's saying is, look, I remember days when it was so much better, when I was, I was leading the band, I was leading the choir, I was into it, man, I, you were everywhere. Now, I don't feel that at all. Why are you cast down, oh my soul? And I love how it, he's talking to himself. Why are you cast down, oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. The psalmist is constantly reminding himself of the promises and character of God, who God is, and what God said he is up to in his life. 
as a result, and you see this pattern consistently throughout the third book of Psalms. And what I mean by that is the book of Psalms is divided into five major books. The third book is from about 40 to the 70s or 80. And most of them are called lament psalms because the writer is grieving for various reasons. But the pattern is the same. They keep repeating to themselves the promises of God and it begins to shift. Just like the fear gave way to faith and the pain gave way to praise. Now, do you remember in chapter 27 when David originally fled to the Philistines and fled to Gath, how the chapter opens up? It opens up with David letting his heart speak, and it says this, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. And I remember I told you in the verb, it keeps repeating it. David was his own most influential counselor. But now in chapter 30, David is speaking back to his heart, and he finds strength. In other words, in chapter 27, David was letting his heart run crazy with all this self-talk, and it fueled his fear. Now David seems to have learned his lesson, and he strengthens himself in God, and now he's speaking to his heart, and he finds strength. So the first way we do it is we are repeating, weaving into our lives the promises of God into the very fabric of our lives. Secondly, we can strengthen ourselves in Him. I think this is in verse 7. We see this. David takes advantage of, the access, of his access to God's presence and guidance. Notice that. He says, he strengthened his hand in God. And the first thing it says is, Abiathar, let's, let's start talking with God here. Now, now, granted, none of us have a personal priest in our back pocket, right? We don't have that, an app for that. or That, that might be kind of cool, an Urim and Thummim app, right? Or something like that. But we don't have that, right? We, we, we don't have the direct one-on-one communication with the priest. But Abiathar was just a rank-and-file priest. He wasn't the great high priest. And every one of us in the New Covenant have direct access to the great high priest, right? Hebrews chapter 4, 14 and and, and 4, 16 talks about that, that we have access to give us grace to help in time of need. So Hebrews 4, 14 says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'll be honest, our answers may not be exactly precise answers that we get, but at the end of the day, when you're going through tragedy, it's not information that you're looking for. When we are going through tragedy, more often than not, what we need is endurance. What we need is assurance that God's going to make all things work out for His good, for His glory and our good, right? It's not the specifics we're looking for. We just want to know, God, I just want to make sure that I can endure this and you assure me of your presence. So to sum up, the way we strengthen ourselves in God is a three-step process. The foundation, there's a personal relationship that you are building with God. Secondly, it's the promises of God that you are weaving through the fabric of your life. And then finally, you are enjoying His presence. Can I just say this? Isn't that a little bit of what we're supposed to be doing every Sunday when we gather? Isn't that what we're doing? We are actually doing the very thing that is building into your life, strengthening in God. But, but here's the thing, here's the thing that you need to know. If this is all you're getting of those three, if this is all your understanding of a personal God is, is with us on Sunday mornings, if this is the only time you're reflecting on the promises of God, if this is the only time you're enjoying His presence, it actually doesn't help you at all. It actually makes things worse. 
What I mean by that is, if this is it for you, you are getting to, to, to understand that He's a personal God because you're seeing that. You're understanding, you're hearing the promises of God because God's Word's being taught and sung. You are enjoying His presence because we are together. He loves to be with His people. But then you walk away and never have it again. So it's only enough to taunt you with what you actually don't have. The worst case scenario is you actually think you've tried God and it doesn't work. We were not meant to be, to grow and flourish on just this 90-minute time together on Sunday mornings. We weren't. It just will not happen. Our time together is, based, is, is also is a accumulation of your time of worship and presence with God coming together with the people of God as well as a springboard to go off into the next week. Does that make sense? It serves two purposes, that we corporately gather to give expression to what you personally are doing, that's what's happening here, and you're being equipped, built up, strengthened to go off to do the same thing next week. But if the only time God matters to you is in this uh, 75 minutes, it actually serves the reverse purpose for you. It's kind of like walking up to Disneyland but not being able to go in. When our kids were little, we took them to downtown Disney. And uh, they, when we came home, they said, wow, Disneyland was fun. I thought, ooh, it's cheap. It's free to go downtown Disney. They think they're at Disneyland. Oh, this is awesome. You know, we don't have to pay the fees until one day my oldest went, dad, dad, people keep going past this area where we never go past. What's down there? And they realized this whole time, wait a minute, what we've been getting isn't Disneyland. That's what we want. In the same way, if this is all you're getting, oh, you may feel that it's good, but it's not the real thing. And we need to have God's, per, that personal reality, the promises of God in His presence in your life. Okay, so that's how we build strengthening in God. Now, how does strengthen God shape our responses to the highs and lows of life? I, I think it's important to say this, that David was emotionally as well as physically wiped out in this passage, okay? So he was emotionally wiped out. We saw that from verse 3, verse 3, but he was actually physically wiped out as well because they had just done a a three-day, 60-mile march to come back from the Philistines in chapter 29. So they were exhausted. They come across this tragedy, then he seeks the Lord, uh, verse 6 and 7, and then he moves out again, says, okay, God's going to give us deliverance, and then we get to these really weird verses, 11 through 15. Now, if you've read the chapter ahead of time, you probably think, what in the world is this whole five verses dedicated to finding some Egyptian slave who is half dead in the wilderness and them feeding him like a king? Four times they talk about what they fed the guy, like we are that concerned with that. They fed him water, they fed him cakes, they fed him raisins. What's the big deal? It doesn't seem to fit unless what you are trying to show is David's character that in the midst of his agony and sorrow, he was still able to be compassionate to others in their need. More importantly, unless what you're trying to show that the very promises that David strengthened himself and gave himself personal strength were the very promises that shaped his life as he went out into the world, as he deals with this no-name, insignificant castaway slave on the point of death. 
For example, let's see, look at these verses here. These are three verses. I won't read them all. They come from the Torah, but they're all pivotal verses that command the people of God to love the sojourner, love the wanderer, love the one that's not part of their community. Three times, these are actually, there are more instances of this, but the point being is that David understood what the Scriptures taught, and even in the midst of his, tra- his tragedy, he wasn't defined by it. Even though he was going through sorrow and had no idea that he would get back his wives and his sons and daughters, in the midst of his tragedy, he was not defined by it and could even care for somebody else who had need. Folks, when when we are in our own tragedy, one of the temptations is that we, we close in on ourselves, don't we? It's very easy, it's understandable that we take the world we live in, and we decrease it to the size of our pain. It's very significant that in the midst of David's pain and all this pain, that this writer puts in how they cared for this one seemingly insignificant slave. His sorrow did not become his defining trait. Even in his grief, he took time out to be obedient to God's Word and to care for someone who had need. And as it turns out, by the way, this particular slave becomes the very key to finding their captive wives, sons, and daughters. The strength in God means we are not defined so much by what happens to us as much as we are defined by what God does in us. That's very important. Strength in God is not determined so much by the things that happen to us as much as it's defined by what God does in us. The reason that's so important is we all live in an age that is constantly telling us that our experiences, our biology, our genetics, our neighborhoods, our socioeconomic status, our ethnicity, our sexual orientation, all those things are the things that define us, and they're not. The Bible never teaches us this kind of uh, nurture view, this behavioristic view. Now, they might influence us. They will influence us. But it's always our hearts that determines and defines who or what we will be in life. And if our hearts are oriented to the things of God then we will be shaped and changed accordingly. Likewise, if our hearts are oriented to the things of this world, we will be shaped and changed accordingly. Friends, this is exactly why two people can grow up in the same kind of uh, material blessing and abundance, and one grow up to be entitled and spoiled, and the other grow up to be generous and kind. Why two people can grow up in the same exact abject poverty, and one grows up bitter and angry, the other grows up compassionate and generous. Because it's not so much the things outside of us that determine and define who we will be as the thing inside of us that is our hearts. And what determines what will shape that is the orientation of our hearts. Is it oriented to God and His Word and His character or the things of this world? I guarantee you that will have more determinative factor on what you become than any other factor. Genetics, biology, economics, ethnicity, sexual orientation, all of those things. They don't define who we are. Our hearts do. And David's heart was oriented to the things of God, to the promise and character of God, and the grace of God so lavishly given to him. And we see that clearly in verses 21 through 24. Let me just read that. 
Then David and his men came back to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow them and who had been left at the brook Besor. And when they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with them, and when David came near to the people, he greeted them, verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share and share alike of the plunder. Now, I said in the first hour that, um, you know, I said, if you're one of my democratic friends in our church, what I don't want you to do is come up to me and say, ha, there it is, verse 23, 24, economic wealth redistribution right there. Go Bernie 2016, okay? I mean, he's out of the race by now. But, but the point being, if, if that is all we're seeing in here, and if you think that, that that view is radical, that's not nearly as radical as what the Bible teaches, it's shocking to say in conservative South Orange County that, that wealth redistribution is not actually radical enough. You guys are thinking, do we have a vote to kick the pastor out? Let me get to it this way. This is what I'm getting at. God says He owns it all, that He has given it all so He gets to determine how it's all used anyway. God says He is the one who gives strength, breath, life, power, influence, time, money, sexuality, morality, children, career. He gave it all. It was all His to give anyway. He determines how it is to be used. If we just read this, these kinds of passages and just read into them the kind of political philosophy of the day like economic redistribution and not the radical doctrine of God's sovereignty and absolute generous grace, you're not nearly as radical as God is. Do you see what is happening here contrasted with these men? By the way, in verse 22, do you know why they're called worthless fellows? They're not called worthless fellows because they had some kind of capitalist view, you know, tit-for-tat work policy. You do this, you get that. That's not it. There's a certain reasonableness to that. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 teaches us that. But the reason they were called worthless fellows was not because of their economic view here of distributing the plunder that they got. It's because they didn't understand, so therefore they did not live from the grace that God displayed to them. Their worldview was shaped not by God's character and His promises and His generous grace. It was shaped more by a, a kind of rigid, wooden morality. And David recognized, we saw it in verse 23, he recognized that everything that has happened to them in this chapter and everything that has happened up to chapter 16 when he came on the scene and everything that has happened since Genesis 1 has been a gift of God's grace and not of themselves lest they should boast about it. Theologian Ralph Davis said it beautifully, so I want to put his words on the screen. I couldn't, beat, I couldn't top these words. The difference between grace and works is the difference between worship and idolatry. The man inebriated, I love that he used that word, the man inebriated with the thought that all he has is Yahweh's gift, finds himself repeatedly on his knees, adoring, thanking, praising. 
But if we do not grasp grace, we plummet into idolatry, for that is the inevitable corollary of self-sufficiency. Then we walk around talking about the plunder we have recovered and other such ridiculous notions. Folks, grace is the only thing that keeps us from worshiping ourselves. A biblical understanding of grace is the only thing that keeps us from worshiping ourselves. Self-sufficiency will always morph into self-idolatry. It always will. Because you believe you somehow were the one that made it happen. Self-sufficiency always morphs into self-idolatry unless that phrase from verse 23 becomes your personal motto, which was what David said, what the Lord has given to us you will inevitably be someone who believes in some kind of works righteousness. Unless you radically understand that everything we have is from God Himself, everything, you will believe in some form of works righteousness. One final thought. Aren't we glad that Christ was willing to fight a battle that we couldn't and share the plunder with us? Aren't we glad that, that God does not hold such a pragmatic perspective of rewards with us? Aren't we glad that Christ lavishly shares the spoils of His victory and without begrudging us at all? This is the last shot we see of David. It's very interesting the way the writer deliberately wrote this chapter and recorded the events that he chose to record. When last we see David, he is enduring unimaginable sorrow, showing compassion to those who have been forgotten, fighting the Lord's enemies, the Amalekites, to rescue those who have been taken captive, and in response to God's grace, joyfully sharing the spoils with all the people of God. Folks, what is that? That's the gospel. That is the story of what Jesus Christ came to do the man of sorrows who fought an enemy that we couldn't fight, to win back the captives who were taken by deceit and sharing the spoils of his victory with everyone. That's the gospel story. And I believe the writer is putting this together so that we see time and time again in character, in symbol, in narrative, we're reminded of the gospel. How many times have we seen this story in the book of 1 Samuel? There's a reason that God continues to remind us that His salvation comes in 10,000 different ways, and that's because the gospel is not a one-time event. It is not something reserved for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is the thing by which our lives are shaped by and the worldview that changes the way we get through the world. But if we forget that, we inevitably drift to a system of works because we forgot God's system is a system of grace. Let's pray. This message titled Triumph in the Midst of Tragedy was given by Pastor Rick Roadheaver at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. This message is part of a series from the book of 1 Samuel. For more information or resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.ccclh.org.